There is a uh, classic joke about a son who doesn't want to go to church one day. He's in bed far too late that Sunday morning. His mother tries to rouse him, but he resists and says, I don't want to go. And when she asks why not, he says, I'll give you two reasons why I shouldn't go. One, they don't like me there, and two, I don't like them. And she looks right back at him and says, I'll give you two reasons why you should go. One, you're 30 years old, and two, you're the pastor. And the son went to church that morning. Let it be known, I like all of you, no exceptions. But I was thinking about this joke today because I did have a few moments in the past week where I wondered if I had to come to church and provide a sermon this morning. I had two good reasons not to. One, we changed the times last night, and I'm not a fan of that at all. And two, this parable and I don't get along. As far as parables go, this one is the worst. And I, maybe that's a bit of a, a personal opinion, but I really don't think that it's very difficult to say this is just the worst parable out of all of the parables. There's no farmer, there's no seeds or sheep or yeast or coins. It's just a wedding feast, a whole lot of violence, and then more questions than answers. I figure some scriptures saunter in and they just sort of offer up gifts and insights without much trouble. But then there are other passages like this one that lumber in ready for a fight, for a wrestling match. And so there's something of, of value here. There's something of value in all scriptures but we might have to tussle for it. So friends, get ready to rumble. We're going to pull this scripture apart. We're going to dissect it. We're going to disassemble it. We might just find something good in it. We might just find a blessing at the end of it. We'll see. Let us pray. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Why wouldn't someone want to go to a wedding feast thrown by the king? I heard tell once that if you visit Jerusalem today, there are a number of entrepreneurs there who are interested in selling tourists anything that they can, including a tour to visit the very road where the Good Samaritan once helped the man who was beaten by thieves. This would seem like a really complete a visit to the Holy Land Unless you remember that it's a parable of the Good Samaritan. And so whatever road that these tourists visited wasn't the actual road, because there was no actual road. Trying to visit the site of a parable would be like trying to visit the brick house that the little pigs built and the wolf couldn't blow down. It didn't exist except in a story. But the tour guides to this non-existent site of a parable are certainly successful because we so often and so earnestly want Scripture to be true in the simplest possible way. Now, all of Scripture is true in some way, and some of it is simple, but most Scripture is complex, to say the least. And so our desire for it to be simple can become a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy that encourages us to flatten down the more difficult portions until it becomes palatable, despite the fact it leaves the original text rather unrecognizable. Taking the Bible seriously requires us to wrestle with the text, including parables like this one. In this way, reading the Bible might be like building a track for a toy train. 
Hear me out, because I think this, this analogy might really work. We have been gifted a number of toy track and trains, and you might recognize them from your children's childhood or your own childhood. It's that classic, unchanging design, pieces of track and straight pieces and curved pieces and larger curved pieces and bridges up and bridges down, um, and little trains that go around it. And I think this is wonderfully fun, and much to my delight, my son likes the trains, but isn't old enough yet to be very good at building the track. And so it is my duty, my responsibility, to build the track for him. And so you take that big tub of all of the pieces, and you think about what you can build. And at first, it seems like you can build anything. Those pieces can go together in any which way. But as soon as you start laying them out, you discover it's not exactly that simple. There are limitations to what the pieces can do. And if you go straight and then you turn and you're bringing it around from another section, they don't always match up. And so you have to find ways to make all of the pieces fit together. You've got all the pieces. And there's ways to put them together. But you have to find them and work at it to find the right way. And that can change, too, based on the environment that you're in. Are you in a basement with flat floors? Are you trying to go over couch cushions here, there, or anywhere else? How do you take the pieces you're given and use them to build something that works in the place where you have found yourself in that moment? And so sometimes I have found myself trying to do things that I cannot do with the pieces that I have. Now, I've discovered that there are some wonderful pieces that can help with this. In some of the track that we've been given, there is a piece that has two receiving ends and two uh, other ends, so they're like, like puzzle pieces where they fit together and so you can switch things around, and that's a help, and so sometimes that works. But always, find, I find myself at some point trying and trying new and different ways to find something that works. And so it could be that reading Scripture, trying to understand it, is like taking in all of the pieces and finding ways to put it together that works in the place where you have found yourself in that moment. And so it can be in this way that Scripture is both living and malleable. Living because the Scriptures can say new things at any given moment, that anything God wants to say to us can be said somewhere, somehow. And it is also malleable because we can twist it to say what we might want it to say. There are good ways to build the track, and there are less good ways. We can make it to good destinations if we try hard enough, but we can also end up places that we shouldn't be driving our train to at all. This is how we end up in difficult situations like we did in the, the middle of the 1800s when the church was split over the question of slavery. They both had the same pieces, the same box of train track, and some were building tracks to say slavery is okay, and some were building tracks to say slavery is not okay. There's lots of ways to put the pieces together. Some of them are good, and some of them are bad, and some of them work, and some of them don't. It is always a little interesting to recognize that those who stand the most to benefit from a particular interpretation often find their way to that interpretation with the pieces of track that they find. And then one of the more difficult things in building the train track I have found is that I'm a bit of a perfectionist. I want to use all of the pieces. I want to take the whole tub and dump it all out on the floor and put every piece in. And that only makes things more difficult. You can build relatively straightforward tracks if you don't use all of the pieces. But if you start trying to incorporate everything, well, then it gets more complicated and more difficult. And more often than not, I find that I am left 
with pieces that don't seem to fit anywhere. And perhaps this happens with Scripture, too. There is a relatively common interpretation of this difficult parable. It goes something like this. Jesus tells this story about a king, and the king must be God, and the king has a son, and the son must be Jesus, and there's a wedding feast, and some are invited, and yet they don't come. And those who don't come are the Jewish people whom God has sent prophets to already, and so God increases the invitation to those who are good, bad, and otherwise to come and join the feast, and that's everyone else in the world. This is how the interpretation tends to go, and it seems like it could be okay, but it gets a little bit more difficult as we come around to that difficult part where there's someone at the feast who doesn't belong, isn't wearing an outfit, and so the interpretation goes that that person who doesn't have the right outfit on is someone who has tried to accept the invitation but hasn't done the work of embodying it, of putting on Christ, and so they're cast out into darkness, gnashing of teeth. It's a relatively straightforward interpretation, and it works in a lot of good ways. It talks about that open invitation to all people, good and bad, it says in the text. And that's a wonderful thing. And we know that from all of the rest of scriptures, that's something God does. Open invitation is kind of the basis of this whole thing. And then that more difficult part about the person who doesn't put on the right outfit, well, that's harder, but still a reasonable thing because we have this whole text, this whole body of Scripture, which reminds us that we have to accept the invitation, and it should transform us somehow, it should change our lives from the inside out, and so that's pretty reasonable in the end, too. And so we make a little track that goes out and comes back in a wonderful, simple way. But it leaves some pieces not included in the track. The king's violence. What do we do with that? That doesn't fit into this interpretation of the parable at all. And this implication that it is right to cast people out into darkness and suffering, well, that's a difficult thing, too. There's lots of ways that throughout the years people have tried to interpret these missing leftover pieces back into the track. Some of them work better than others. Sometimes we find the train leading to places we'd rather not go. One of the bigger ones is a very anti-Semitic reading of this text. The king sent out messengers to those that in our interpretation must be the Jews, and they rejected it. And so we have rejected Jewish people throughout all of the years since, have treated them unkindly, poorly, to say the very least. And then there's that piece about the violence thing that happens, the man not wearing the right outfit, and sometimes that becomes track leading us to a point where we say, well, to be like God, we must do the same thing. And so those that accept the invitation but don't change soon enough or fully enough, well, then we will cast them out into darkness and gnashing of teeth. And the parable, which for a moment seemed very reasonable and understandable, gets awfully difficult all over again. But it's not the only way to put the pieces of this parable together. And so I wonder about exploring another one this morning. And it begins with a question. Why wouldn't someone come to a wedding feast thrown by the king? 
You'd think that anyone would want to. Feasts are a time of celebration, jubilant dancing and feasting. And yet, a whole swath of people in this story do not come to the feast. It could be that when a king does anything, including throwing a feast, it is not just a feast. It is a political movement. The king is throwing a wedding feast for his son who's getting married and in some way trying to establish the transfer of power, the lineage of authority and royalty in a land. For why is it that sons of kings get married except to become the next king and to provide a child to become the king after that? And so it very well might be that the king is throwing a feast and is enshrining in that land and in the people the idea that this king is passing on his authority to his son to come after him. A reasonable thing to do, perhaps, if you like the king and you like the son, and yet no one comes to the feast. And how often is it in history that we have found kings who are very good at their jobs? And how often is it that we have found kings who have passed on their authority to their sons and found that the sons have been very good at their, their job? And so the king invites all of the well-to-do people to support the establishment of his authority and lineage, and they do not come. And so the invitation becomes a demand. You can hear it very subtly, but the king says, look, I have slaughtered these animals. The feast is ready. Come and celebrate with me. And still they say no. And so the king sends out mercenaries to slaughter all those who wouldn't allow him to establish his kingdom into the future. And so then the king goes out and finds anyone else that the king can find to come to that feast. Because it's not just a matter of respectability that the king will look bad if no one is there at the wedding feast. It's a matter of political authority. To have no one there, to have the support of none of his kingdom, would be a weakness, would be a potential opportunity for someone to come in and topple the king from his throne. And so the king sends out servants and says, anyone that you can find, you get them in here right now. And the king says to them, come in, sit down here, and act happy. Because this is a good and a joyful time, and everyone needs to know that I am king, and my son will be king after me, and so on and so forth down the line. And so the people who have nothing to their name, who could not hardly say no, come in and sit down, and are as happy as they can be, except for one. One who refuses to wear the outfit belonging to a wedding guest. One who refuses to partake in the jubilant activities that the king would require. And the king notices. Because the people need to be happy, need to support him in his rule. And so the king pulls that one out and says, why aren't you acting happy? Why aren't you dressed for the occasion? And this man says nothing. Perhaps he is stunned but perhaps he is unfazed, rebellious, and defiant. 
Hence the king casts out the man. Using words that make us think of hell, darkness and gnashing of teeth, but that's always been a metaphor, and it might still be a metaphor here, that when you defy the powers that be, what happens except that they make your life a hell on earth? That's what the powerful do when the weak rebel. And so we have a very different story that we can put together with the pieces that we have been given. A story that sounds very much like one that could happen in any kingdom, in any place, in any time. In any time. When the people would want to rebel against those who are in charge. And why would that be except for all of the reasons that always seems to be? That those who are in charge care only for themselves and not for those at the bottom. That the only thing the king seems to do is protect the powerful and to crush and oppress the powerless. And so perhaps it's important to know that in this chapter of Matthew, it comes right after the chapter before it, as chapters tend to work. And in the chapter before it, Jesus has come into Jerusalem on a donkey. See, we try to go in order as much as we can, but we're going to get to that later on on Palm Sunday, because it always comes the week before Easter. But Matthew spends a long time in Jerusalem. Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and it is a parade of some sort. Jesus is sitting on a donkey, which is a strange thing for a king to do, coming into a city, and yet people respond to Jesus as if he is a king. And so he is a threat to those in power, the current kings over the land, showing that he is going to be a different sort of king, ruling in a different sort of way without the power and authority and violence which with, with which Rome has ruled the people so far. And so it comes in that chapter and in, in that sequence that the priests and the elders, the religious leaders of the time, are upset with Jesus and they're looking for ways to discredit and deny him because they themselves are allied with the political power of that day to preserve their own place in society. This is what the Roman Empire did everywhere that they went. They allied with the local leaders, the elite, whether they be landowners or priests or scribes. They take those who have some power and help enshrine that power for them even more at the expense of everyone else in society. And so it is that the religious leaders and the elite are already allied with the king of the time. They are the ones who would have gone to the feast, who would have celebrated the kingdom moving from one era to the next and on into the future. It could be that in the world in which they live, everyone would have gone to the feast and done as they had been told, celebrated the good Roman overlords, except perhaps for one man who rode in on a donkey who dared defy the ruling leaders of the day, who didn't dress for the party they were trying to throw. And what happened to him but being cast out into darkness and gnashing of teeth onto a hill and a cross and death. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a king who throws a feast for his son. But there's a bit of ambiguity in the text here, in the way that Jesus says it, where it could be that it is alike 
or it could be compared and be different. It could be that we are looking at something as it could be or we find ourselves face to face with what is and recognizing how far we have yet to come. And so the parable could be a reminder of the open welcome that God offers to all. But it might also be an invitation to stand up against the continuation of the powerful who rule at the expense of the weak. It could be an invitation to stand against the momentum of oppression, to be the one who refuses to celebrate when those who are in charge oppress those who are not. There is a quote you may have heard before, and and I have, um, that goes like this. First, they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. I've heard it a number of times in a number of different contexts, and only just found this last week it was spoken by a pastor by the name of Martin Niemöller, who had lived through Hitler's reign in Germany. And it was an accurate depiction of what he had found in the life that he had lived that spoke, that speaks to how quickly, when we support those who oppress others, that can turn on ourselves. In his own story, he was himself a supporter of Hitler and Hitler's regime for years and years. As he said, first they came for others and I did not speak out. It wasn't until they started coming for the church and his church that he started to rebuff that a little bit. Found himself in a meeting with Hitler himself and two other prominent bishops of the church where they found themselves under pressure from the government to do and support the things that the government was doing. The other two in that meeting decided that they would sign statements of unconditional loyalty to the Fuhrer. Benimoller realized that that was a contradiction to the faith that he held and to the way of Christ. And so he began to oppose the ruling class which oppressed so many, found himself tossed, left in a concentration camp for a number of years. Because this is what happens when you dare to stand against those who are in charge. It could be that the religious leaders had so, much, so little to gain and so much to lose that they were comfortable allying themselves with the Roman Empire. And it could be still a worthwhile question for us today. Are we afraid of losing what we have so much that we would overlook the suffering of others? That we would fear being cast out more than we would fear what is happening to God's beloved children at any place, at any time in the world. Jesus rode into Jerusalem, was an affront to the authorities there, and gave a parable that might have said something 
of the same, might have spoken of his own being thrown out into darkness. And yet, as we follow the story and the journey that he walks, we might, might remember that in the darkness and being thrown out, there is new life and there is freedom. That standing up for what is right, even when it is difficult, might be the loving thing to do. It could be that these are the pieces we have to work with at any moment in our lives. To ask, where is it that we want to go? What pieces do we need to put together to ensure that we are headed towards love, even if it costs us everything? Perhaps this is how we can put this parable back together. May it be so. Amen. Friends, I invite us to continue in worship with our next hymn, I Surrender All. We're singing verses 1, 2, and 5. You can find the hymnal if you like, or all the words will be on the screen. Let you stand as you are able. Let us sing together.